The year was 1781. The 13 American colonies' war for independence from Great Britain had now drug on for six exhausting years, and America's prospects for victory were bleak. The Army and Navy of the British Empire were the finest fighting forces in the entire world. They had to be. It was said, and rightly so, that the sun never set on the British Empire. Controlling its vast domains demanded a well-oiled military machine. By 1781, the British controlled the important seaport of New York in the north of the colonies. In the south, its ablest general, Lord Cornwallis, was sweeping through the, the Carolinas. His goal? To annihilate America's southern army and convince the southern colonies that further fighting was futile. In the north, General George Washington knew that the end was near. He even wrote, in a word, we are at the end of our tether. Now or never, our deliverance must come. You see, American morale was crumbling, and the condition of Washington's army was questionable at best. In the words of American General Anthony Wayne, our army was poorly clothed, badly fed, and worse paid. Some of them have not received a paper dollar for near 12 months. Think about that. <laughs> 12 months. No pay. And it was just as well. The American economy was on the brink of collapse. Congress and the various states both printed paper money, but by 1780 it wasn't worth the paper it was written on. Rumors of mutiny and mass desertions coursed through the ranks. Though an alliance with France brought the French army to New York, Washington feared that he lacked the troop strength to take the city. It was brutally apparent that 1781 would be the last year of the war. After seeing the American army, the French general de Rochambeau described 1781 as the last struggle of expiring patriotism. You see, he doubted the Americans' will to win. But perhaps, perhaps he shouldn't have. Perhaps Rochambeau was mistaken. Underfed? Yes. Underclothed? No question. Underpaid? And then some. Expiring patriotism? I don't think so. Think about it. Despite the hardships and the difficulties, they stayed and they continued to fight. From that first shot heard round the world, fired on Lexington Green in 1775, through the valiant stand against overwhelming odds at Breed's Hill, they stayed and they fought. From the cruel winters at Valley Forge to the daring victory at Trenton, they stayed, and they fought. 
through losses too numerous to mention and conditions that have broken most people. More American soldiers actually died from exposure, disease, and malnutrition than battle wounds in the entire war. Still they stayed. And they fought. Why? Why? What drove them to what seems at first blush madness? What drove them? I think that deep down at the core of their being, in their very heart of hearts, these men and women believed in the lofty ideals set forth in the Declaration of Independence. A document produced by flawed and imperfect people, yet imbued with aspirations that America continues to this day to struggle at turning into realities. Ideas like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They believe this. They believe that some truths are self-evident. They're obvious. They go without saying. They don't need to be explained. That we are created beings. And that we're created equal. That magic phrase alone thrilled the minds and hearts of people who for centuries had been considered subjects. Ruled for generation after generation by the dictatorship of hereditary pampered kings. And aristocrats in powdered wigs. That they were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. In other words, rights are not given to us by government, but by God. And they are unalienable. They cannot be taken away from us by the government because they are God-given. And these rights include the right to life, to defend oneself from harm by others or by an overreaching and unjust government. The right to liberty, to live, to speak, to worship freely without fear of government oppression. The right to pursue happiness, to pursue life on my own terms, within the bounds of the law, to own property and have it safeguarded and to strive for the common good of all. Unalienable rights. And it went on. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In other words, governments exist to protect the rights of people. People don't exist to serve the government. And governments receive their power to rule only through the consent, the agreement of the people. 
And when governments cease to protect these unalienable rights, the people have the right to abolish the government and create a new one. This was unthinkable in those days. These ideas struck at the very heart of European monarchy. King George III, the king of England, considered them so treasonous, he was determined to crush the rebellion and hang the leaders. Each of the 56 signers knew when they signed the document, they were signing their own death warrant. As Ben Franklin so wryly quipped, we must all hang together, or assuredly we shall all hang separately. Interestingly, they signed their names under the Declaration's final paragraph. And it goes like this. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. For some, this pledge came true. Some of them lost family members in the war. One signer's wife died due to complications from maltreatment she received while imprisoned by the British. Some had their homes ransacked or burned. Many stayed on the move throughout the six years of the war to avoid detection. One actually lived in caves. For the past 60 years or so, we've been taught in our school system an economic view of history. It wasn't always that way. We've been taught that history is driven by the almighty dollar. Ask most Americans today why the colonies revolted and they can only tell you one thing. Taxation without representation. Isn't it fascinating that the Declaration of Independence lists 27 Grievances against the royal government and taxation without representation doesn't appear until number 17. After grievances about self-rule, the administration of justice, government expansion, and the quartering of British troops in American homes. See, leaders don't pledge their lives their fortunes, their sacred honor simply for the almighty dollar. They don't. And soldiers don't serve in horrific circumstances for months without pay unless something deeper, something more meaningful is motivating them. Something far greater drives a person to pledge their life, their fortune, their sacred honor. In 1781, while Washington contemplated his battle plan for attacking New York, the situation was changing in the South. The American general, Nathaniel Green, lured Lord Cornwallis and his army into a deadly game of cat and mouse across the Carolinas. Cornwallis pursued the Americans from South Carolina into North Carolina, ultimately up into Virginia. 
The British used European warfare with large armies amassed in lines facing each other in the open field. And suddenly Lord Cornwallis experienced guerrilla warfare. Less trained, poorly armed, and fewer in number, General Green preferred to hit and run, refusing to face Cornwallis on the open field. Instead, he gradually drew the pursuing Cornwallis deeper and deeper into more and more difficult terrain and further from his supply lines. Green, interestingly described his battle plan as, we fight, get beat, rise, and fight again. Cornwallis became so frustrated by his inability to corner the wily green that he ordered his troops to burn all excess baggage and supplies, including tents and extra clothes and heavier supply wagons. He jettisoned every extra to enable his army to move at lightning speed. In the words of one of his junior officers, With zeal and bayonets, it was resolved to follow Green's army to the end of the world. In three months, Cornwallis drove his army across flooded countryside and swollen rivers over 200 miles through difficult terrain under constant threat from snipers and small skirmishes that exacted an increasing toll in dead and wounded. And unfortunately for Cornwallis, the end of the world never came. But the end of his soldier's stamina did. In the summer of 1781, Cornwallis was forced to break off the pursuit and retreat with his beleaguered army to a little town on the coast called Yorktown, Virginia. And suddenly... The hunter became the hunted. Now Cornwallis assumed when he made it to the coast that the British army in New York would either reinforce him by land or evacuate him by sea. But on August 14th, events took a providential turn. Washington was informed that the French Caribbean fleet with 29 ships, 3,000 marines, and several dozen cannons was headed toward Virginia. Perhaps Washington's deliverance had finally come. Cornwallis' escape by sea could be cut off by the French fleet, but because of hurricane season, the French fleet could only remain off the coast of Virginia until mid-October. Washington had to move fast. He made the decision to march his army 500 miles south from New York. It was a grueling march through the hot, humid, mosquito-infested coastline. By land and ferry, Washington's army made the 500-mile trip in just under 30 days. Fainting maneuvers and fake orders that were deliberately lost to the British convinced the British Army in New York that Washington's real target was to attack New York. 
By the time they discovered the truth, Cornwallis was trapped. At this point, the Battle of Yorktown became simply a matter of physics. You see, the French field cannon were longer range than anything Cornwallis had. And they began to pound the British defenses nonstop, day after day and night after night. Cornwallis had commandeered the home of Thomas Nelson, Jr., one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence for use as his headquarters. Nelson was actually with Washington, and he urged Washington to open fire on his own house. The accuracy of the cannons forced Cornwallis eventually to move from the house into a makeshift bunker. The last remaining obstacle to an American victory were two British forward outposts known in the military as redoubts. Redoubts were earthworks that were built up. They were surrounded by trenches and equipped with outward-pointing wooden posts sharpened on the end. Defenders would remain behind the earthwork, but they had ladders inside these earthworks would allow them to, to look over the top and shoot at anybody coming toward the earthwork. Approaching enemies were forced to run down into a trench that they had built. So it was even you were coming at this earthwork and you get down into a trench and then had to try to climb up through the stakes while under fire from above. Typically, they sent the first people in and they were called sappers, armed only with axes. They would run to the earthwork and try to cut down one or two of the stakes so the men could get through. For the first to the trench, it was typically suicide. But if the redoubts could be taken, the Americans and French could move their cannons within point-blank range of Cornwallis. On October 14, 1781, shortly after dark, an American force of 400 led by Alexander Hamilton crept across a quarter mile of open field toward redoubt number 10. Now, in order to avoid the possibility of alerting the enemy of their approach by a musket accidentally going off, the attacker's guns, get this, were not loaded. In this attack, they would use bayonets only. It was vicious, brutal, hand-to-hand combat. But within 30 minutes, the Americans and the French possessed both British redoubts. The bombardment of Yorktown intensified at close range. And three days later, Cornwallis surrendered 
and the Revolutionary War for all intents and purposes was over. The British never recovered. Interestingly, during the final surrender ceremony, a British officer noted that as they marched out through the lines of French and American soldiers, that some of the American soldiers didn't even have shoes. Think about it, friends. What drives a man like Thomas Nelson to direct cannon fire at his own home? What pushes him to pledge his fortune for the cause of freedom? What drives men to sign a document filled with lofty ideals unheard of and untried in their time, knowing they could swing from a rope for it? What prompts them to pledge their sacred honor for a dream? What drives soldiers who are poorly clothed, poorly fed, and unpaid to stand and to stay and to fight, to follow to the end, to march 500 miles in a month for one last shot at victory, to charge a redoubt with an unloaded gun? to pledge their lives. You know, friends, when I think of Memorial Day and the actions of our founding fathers and our servicemen and women, two values stand out that are at the very heart, not only of what our country originally stood for, but of Christianity. And that's service and sacrifice. But you know, friends, there's a third value that comes to mind as well, a value that breathes life into service and emboldens us to sacrifice. You see, many people will serve as long as serving is easy. Few serve to the very end. Many will sacrifice as long as the sacrifice costs little. Few sacrifice to the very end. When you think about it, Jesus exemplified the idea of following to the end. Just as our forefathers followed the dream of liberty to the end, Jesus followed his father's will to the end. In fact, he said it this way. It's our focus verse. It's coming up on the screens. Let's, let's all recite it together. Here we go. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Let's do that. Let's do that again. Here we go, guys. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. How can we, as Christians, be faithful even to the point of death? What is it that will enable us to receive life 
as our victor's crown. Friends, I believe that there are five lessons that we can learn about following to the end from Jesus and from those that we remember on Memorial Day. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day that our country sets aside to remember, to memorialize those who have served and who have sacrificed so that we might experience the dream of liberty that our founding fathers had. Father, we thank you for these brave men and women. Help us always to be grateful for what they've done for us and never to forget, never to forget. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, friends, if this is your first time at Good News Gathering, you've got an outline. It's a white sheet with holes punched on the side. And what we're going to do now is we're going to go through that outline, and we're going to look at five things that I think in order to follow to the end that we must do. We must do. Just as our forefathers pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the ideals set forth in the Declaration of Independence. Jesus dedicated his life to his Father's will. And we find his Father's will expressed in the most famous passage in all of Scripture. It's John 3.16 and John 3.17. You're all familiar with it, but it goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This was the lofty ideal that drove Jesus to come into the earth, his father's love for all of us. For God so loved you, And God so loved me that he gave his one and only son. And you know, friends, when I think about Jesus coming into the world, Jesus exemplified following to the end because Jesus was always able to remember his purpose. And if you and I are going to follow to the end, we must remember the purpose. You remember Jesus coming into the world and when he began to teach and he began to heal people, suddenly adoring crowds were all around him and they tried to make him at one point an earthly king. But that wasn't his purpose. When his own family didn't believe him, It didn't sway him from his purpose. When his closest followers tried to divert him, 
he remembered his purpose. When the religious establishment opposed him, he remembered his purpose. You see, Jesus came into the world to give his life so that you and I would not perish. He came to die on a cross for the sins of the world and to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be liberated from the forces of evil and death. You see, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save us. And that offer is there for all who would believe. But friends, if you and I are going to follow to the end, we have to remember the purpose as well. As Christian people, our purpose is not only just to believe in Jesus, but to share the good news with others. To work so that others might live. And friends, when you think about the purpose that he has called us to, to share the good news with others, I can think of nothing better than arriving in heaven one day and having people say, you know what? I'm here because I heard the message from you. Or I heard the message from somebody at Good News. Or I heard the message from your family. What better thing could be said? You know, secondly, friends, if we're going to follow to the end, when you think about those first militias that were determined to face the most formidable military force in the world, think of the attitude they had. No matter what comes, no matter the odds, whatever it takes, we will stand and we will fight. You know, I think about Jesus. Jesus faced all the forces of evil that Satan and hell could bring to bear against him. Because you see, he knew why he came. He knew his purpose, and he came not just, not just to teach, not just to set an example, not just to show us the Father, but to die for our sins. He came to serve. He said it this way. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus was resolved to serve. He was resolved to serve. And he knew that his service not only included teaching and being an example and healing and showing us the Father, but also giving his life as a ransom for many. And friends, if you and I are also going to follow to the end, you and I have to be resolved to serve. Resolved to serve. You see, if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, service is not an option. It is part of the deal. 
As we like to say here at Good News Gathering, a non-serving Christian is a contradiction in terms. Why? Because Christians are followers of Jesus Christ and Jesus served. Regardless of where you serve, regardless of how you serve, regardless of how God has wired you up to serve, your service is important because it advances the kingdom of heaven. And that service is not in vain. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. He said, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Circle those two words. Stand firm. And we can stand firm when we know our purpose and we're resolved to serve. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Not always give yourselves partially. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Always give yourselves fully. Circle that word. Friends, this is what drives people to pledge their lives pledge their fortunes, to pledge their sacred honor. It's a resolve to give themselves fully in service to the work of the Lord. And we know that when we do, our labor is not in vain. Third, friends, as you look at this picture This is perhaps one of the most well-known representations of George Washington during the cruel winters at Valley Forge. His soldiers often reported seeing him in this position. You see, Washington understood that only the hand of providence could empower his ragtag army to overcome the mighty British. And friends, when you read about Jesus in the Bible, you find that he frequently spent time alone in prayer. The Bible records that on the night before he chose his 12 apostles, he spent the night, all night, in prayer. You know that on the night before he died, he spent a considerable amount of time in prayer. And if you and I are going to keep following to the end, there's only one way it's going to work. And that is if we rely on God's power. We must rely on God's power. Why? Because we know that it is not within our own power to follow to the end. just as our founding fathers in the declaration appealed to providence and George Washington prayed, we also know that as Christians we are dependent upon the power of God. But that power is the kind of power that can help us overcome whatever we may face. 
The Apostle Paul wrote this to a church in a town called Ephesus. He said, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. In other words, he's, he's crying out to Christian people, I hope you understand. I hope you'll get it. The incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. He said, if you believe in him, you have it. Incredible greatness of God's power. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Whoa. Think about that. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. In other words, what what Paul is saying is, do you realize that if you believe you have the same mighty power in you that raised Christ from the dead. So whatever you are facing, whatever you're facing, if you think you have an obstacle in front of you that is insurmountable, if you think you have a sin you cannot overcome, if you think you're facing a failure that you cannot get beyond, wrong. Wrong. You have the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand. You have it as a believer. You see, when we rely on God's power and we seek him in prayer and through the study of his word, we have a power that can help us overcome just as our founding fathers and our early (laughs) ragtag army overcame the most powerful force in the world, you and I can overcome what stands in our way. And fourth, when you think about what our army faced, At Valley Forge, two winners that decimated the army through disease and exposure. It's amazing that they came through. It's fascinating to me. That as our army marched to Trenton, Officers reported that you could have tracked them with the blood and the snow from men whose feet had no shoes. And yet they stayed and they fought. And as we look back, I think of what a legacy they've left. Jesus also suffered greatly for us when he went to the cross on our behalf. Perhaps that's why the writer of Hebrews wrote this. He said, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down and especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. 
Look at his example. Paul, the writer says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in the struggle against sin. You see, in order to follow to the end, you and I must remain focused in hardship. We must remain focused in hardship. We have to understand as Christian people that hardships will come in our lives. We will face difficulties and failures and trials. But if we remain focused, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, then we can endure, remain focused in hardship. You know, I think about that army that Washington had to look at and say, boys, we're marching south 500 miles in 30 days. You talk about focused in hardship. But we know, friends, that when we do, There's joy to come. The Apostle Paul said this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall troubles or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you see, friends, when we face hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, just like those early soldiers did, We can remain focused because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And finally, friends, when I think about that surrender at Yorktown and I think about the joy that it brought to those soldiers, not just joy... (laughs) but I'm sure relief knowing for the first time for some of them in six years that they would survive the war. It's amazing to me what these people went through. Jesus also knew the joy that awaited him after the cross. And he went through it for that joy that was coming. We too can experience joy in this world and in the next. 
The Apostle John wrote, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, you and I, when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we become overcomers. The victory can be ours. And in order to follow to the end, you and I must rejoice in the victory that is ours. And the cool thing about this victory, friends, is that it's already there. Jesus guarantees us the victory because he already conquered sin and death. And that's why you and I can, as Luke says in Luke 10, 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Friends, it's my hope and prayer that this Memorial Day each and every one of us will dedicate ourselves, dedicate ourselves to following to the end, to be the kind of Christians who know the purpose, who resolve to serve, who don't give up, when hardships come and who take joy in knowing that there is a home in heaven for us. Friends, I also hope and pray that this Memorial Day you will pause at some point in time, either by yourself or with your family. And if you have children, I would recommend that you do this. That you pause to remember and give thanks for all those service men and women throughout the years who have served and sacrificed and followed to the end for you so that you could enjoy the liberty that their lives produced. It's my hope and prayer that each one of us will say a prayer for those who serve and that we'll say thank you to those that we know that serve on our behalf. It's also my hope and prayer that this Memorial Day you will remember that Jesus came into the world to serve and to sacrifice for you. And that because of him, your name can be written in heaven. Let's go to God in prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of year that we set aside to remember those who have served and sacrificed for the cause of freedom. Father, we're thankful for the freedom that so often we take for granted. Help us always to be grateful. And Father, at this time of year, especially help us to remember your son who served and sacrificed for us so that we could live in eternity with you. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent him. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, amen.